Welcome to our discussion segment on Fyodor Dostoevsky. I'm John Streeter. And I'm Joe Parker. Let's get started. Joe, how's it going? Uh, doing very well. How Good. are you? Doing all right. What made you pick, I know we always ask each other this, but what made you pick Dostoevsky? I was bored. I wanted to find something out. <laughs> no, I, I've always been a huge fan of his. I, I obviously am a fan of his writing, uh, enjoy his topics, yeah. and I love just just the themes that we discussed in the uh, the podcast. Right. Are you a fan of Russian literature generally or specifically Dostoevsky? Uh, specifically him. Uh, the Russian literature is uh, very depressing. Yes, it is, <laughs> so, unfortunately. Uh, it, it is. and so Kind of like their history. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. very challenging sometimes to, to read it and walk away and have a good day. So... Uh, <laughs> I, you mean I, you didn't enjoy uh, Gulag Archipelago? You couldn't, you know, read that not, and I, then... Yeah, enjoy is not the word. It was more of a... It was very enlightening. True. I had no idea before reading that 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 was real yeah. and that happened. Yeah. Well, let's start with kind of a comparison to another Russian author, and that's Tolstoy. Usually when you talk about Russian literature, you talk about Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, and then you've got everybody else. Yeah. Have you read War and Peace or anything else by Tolstoy? I've read half of it. Okay. It was, uh, the reason why half is because at the time that I was reading it, I wasn't as into it as I w wanted to be. Yeah. So I found myself skipping through and um, not remembering <laughs> anything, and I realized I'm wasting my time okay. here. So. Yeah. Well, I would recommend to you and to our audience a very short book by Tolstoy called The Death of Ivan Ilyich, I-L-Y-I-C-H. Uh, it's only about, I think, 80 pages compared to War and Peace, which is like, what, 1,500 yeah. or something like that? That's some ridiculous but it, amount. Yeah, but it's, a, it's an interesting book. It's very philosophical. It deals with questions of life and death, and it's it's typical Russian literature, but it's very, very good. So if you are Looking for something short to read. I think it's available on Audible if you like audiobooks, but I would definitely recommend The Death of Ivan Ilyich by Leo Tolstoy. Nice. And I would also recommend most of Dostoevsky's works. Yeah. Also on Audible, they're very long, so FYI. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I remember hearing, I think it was Peter Kraft, who's a philosopher who we've mentioned before. He talked about the Brothers Karamazov specifically, and he said something to the effect of, it's the greatest Christian novel ever written. Because of the characterization, yeah, you've got obviously the brothers, um, Ivan and Alyosha, you have the Grand Inquisitor, you have a number of very, very memorable characters. But specifically, he calls, I think it's Alyosha, it's the brother who is, a, who is an atheist. He calls him, quote, the most sympathetic atheist that you will ever read about. And he, he, Dr. Kraft actually warned Christians who are not strong in their faith, don't read this book because you might actually lose your faith if you read it. Wow. When you read Brothers Karamazov, did you get a sense of that? Or is that kind of a surprise to you, first of all? Uh, it's kind of a surprise to hear that. And I don't know if it's because my faith is, I don't want to say it's stronger, but... Just kind of a... Uh, humble brag. Hum humble brag. No. <laughs> no <laughs> Not I, because I, of anything I've done. I understand, yeah. Yeah, so I, I think because of that, it made the story flow a little bit better. Mm -hmm. um, his style of writing, as I explained in the podcast, is, is genius. Uh, it, usually, the more you read a story, the closer everything comes together. Instead, it's the opposite. Everything gets farther apart, and somehow through the space that he creates, everything seems to blend better, hmm. which is which is pretty amazing. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I, I think that that's, that's certainly an example of that. Okay. And on his writing style, I was reading an article in prep for this that talked about his use specifically of time references. And I think, it, I think it's in, it's either in Crime and Punishment or 
Brothers Karamazov that in the original Russian, I don't know the word, but the word that's translated as immediately is used something like 600 times. Does he, it's been a while since I've read anything by him, does he always kind of give you very clear time references in order to kind of move the story along? Or was that just kind of one person's interpretation, again, of of what Dostoevsky or how it's he probably wrote? probably both. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've gotten that vibe too. Okay. And I think one of the reasons... I think the a joke I heard was it's because his books are so long. He's trying to give everybody a t- time stamp. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah, but uh, unlike Tolkien, where you're like, wait, thirty years passed in in the span of two pages. What what happened here? Yeah, absolutely. But I think from the perspective of the characters, depending on the scene, everything matters. So mm-hmm. when you're thinking through them, them using the term immediately. It's like really to emphasize that point or event that it will influence uh, their experience within the story and how that story carries through. Yeah. And you talked about the length of it. I remember reading when I read Brothers Karamazov with a lot of novels, especially novels of that length. There, it seems like there's quite a bit of fat on it. There's there's scenes and there's pages and there's even characters where you're just like, how is this advancing the story? But my perception, and these are different interpretations. Maybe, I don't know if you have the same one. There's no fat on Brothers K. You need every single word in order for him to tell that story. Did you get that sense as well? Absolutely. So it's a, a good six, 700 pages. Yeah. It's not like a Moby Dick where <laughs> you have <laughs> several good chapters of wailing and then suddenly they have a fight uh, it's, it's and then like, they have chapters on like whale biology, yeah, whale and things biology, like that. And yeah. like rope tying. Like, it's like oh my, good, my goodness, <laughs> good book, but yeah, yeah. I uh, I don't just don't care, Melville. Like, can you just get to the point? <laughs> no, I and I think the reason why it works is because, uh, as I said in the podcast, they call him the the psychologist of fiction. Mm-hmm. How many words does it take to explain the human psyche? Yeah, and how many all of, of those, them? Yeah. How many of those words fit into the motivations that carry us forward? I, I think that he had a good understanding of that. And mm-hmm. he was able to diagram that in a way that was understandable. Uh, when I think most of us have trouble understanding our own thoughts and our own feelings. <laughs> yeah. And somehow he was able to translate them in a clear way, a clearer way uh, on paper mm-hmm. in, in through these characters. So, I I I say that because the length is understandable. I, yeah. I don't know how you would summarize some of the experiences that the characters have had mm-hmm. or or have in the stories. So if Dostoevsky was in the room with us and we were having a conversation with him after we got done complimenting him and how envious we were of his beard, yeah, what- <laughs> kidding. That beard saw a lot. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it did. And and that's kind of my question. What do you think would be the most interesting conversation topic with him? Would it be kind of the themes of his writing? Would it be um, the question of science versus faith? Would it be kind of traditions versus modernity? Would it be um, the question of suffering? What do you think was kind of his real passion in his writing? I think it was really understanding the human condition. Because from from what I've read in his books and about him, if we asked him a question, he would have a very deep answer. And he wouldn't start on the surface where he would answer the question. He would get to the root of the topic based on his experience and then build up from that that root. Mm-hmm. So it wouldn't be a simple answer. I don't. That's my theory. Right. Um, I think it would be simpler if we started playing cards because he was a gambler. <laughs> but, <laughs> yes, that's or true. Or if we had some vodka or something. Yeah, I think, yeah but... Actually, no, he would I, probably, I, don't want, I don't want to be drinking paint thinner, sorry. Well, yeah, well, I and I would 
guess he would drink a son of the table? I'm just saying. Uh, yeah, he's Russian. Of <laughs> yeah, course he of would. Of course he would. No, but I, I feel- We love you Russians, yeah, but I, wow. Yeah. Uh, he, we, it would be very deep conversations. Mm-hmm. It would be very intentional conversations. There would be nothing passive about it. And I don't believe that he would waste the conversation. Mm. So you were asking about science and faith. I think that those would certainly come up because we, we go back to those roots when we're having deep talks. Like if I'm referencing a right or a wrong, you know, faith is obviously- playing a part in Mm -hmm. that. And I have something to say about that as a result of my faith. So he would pull from the same roots. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about science versus faith. It seemed like Russia at this time, the time that he's writing kind of the late mid to late 19th century. What, what year did he die? Do you remember off the top of your head? It was like 1880s something. Yes. 1881. 1881. Okay. So he grew up under a repressive czar, Nicholas I. Right. Then in his early life, during the kind of the, the flowering of his career, it was during the kind of liberal reforms of Alexander II. And then after his assassination, we get another bit of repression. The, the cycle of repression versus repression versus liberty, it seems to mirror kind of the conversations that are going on in Russian literature of science versus faith, because most of Russian society is very faith-based. Russia is, at this time, very orthodox and mm-hmm. really embracing the mysteries of of their faith and the mysteries of exactly how it has worked out through the czar and through the priests and, and everyone else. Were Dostoevsky's ru- warnings against science, do you think they were valid or do you think do you think that Russia needed a bit more science, a bit more kind of modernity at that time? Or do you think that it was Russia's eventual embrace of some level of modernity that brought us the communist revolution in 1917? That's a great question. When you think about Russia during this time, do you immediately have a Dark Ages vibe? Yes, because it was until right up until Alexander II freed the serfs that Russia was basically still in the Dark right. Ages. Right. So I think in that sense, science was not a bad thing because mm-hmm. when we think about them advancing out of it, the dependency on faith at the time, the faith as dictated by the state was something that may or may not have been like a real faith. So I think that that from a science standpoint, I, I don't know that he was against all of it. I just think that it was the science that would like go against what he firmly believed to be true. In terms of society as a whole, I see that being a good thing, that they started to graduate mm-hmm. out of that uh, time period. And the second part of your question was... Do you think that it was that his warnings against science were kind of fulfilled with the Russian Revolution in 1917 and the rise of communism? I I don't think so. Um, Okay. I don't know how much of the communist revolution relied on the science. Well, I mean, it was was completely anti-religious and anti-faith-based. Does that mean it was automatically pro-science? Well, I mean, in, in the romantic, and he was a romantic, in the romantic worldview, you basically have two modes. You are either rooted in science or you're rooted in faith. Yeah. I think that's what he's not talking about, like, you know, Bolsheviks are in laboratories doing chemistry or biology or things like that. He's talking about what do we worship? What do we hold at the center of our of our lives? Is it science and its emphasis on secular humanism, or is it faith and its emphasis of God and we are his creations? Yeah, I, I still don't think so because that that could have that could have turned into anything. It didn't have to be communism. As said in the podcast, kind of a socialist for a while until he realized the yeah. the anti-God part of it. And even still after that, tried to find a way around that because he liked the idea of 
the lower class people being, uh, you know, as, as he would call them, hmm. being being served and, and help. Hmm. Okay. I, I just don't know that if this, then that is exactly right. That's that's yeah, where I, I kind of get fair. hung up. Where is No, like, and I don't think he thought that it was that a, a Russian revolution based on socialism or communism, Dostoevsky probably wouldn't have said that, oh, that's inevitable or anything like that. Okay. It's just more his his warnings about the dangers of worshiping science and worshiping man instead of worshiping God seemed kind of to come true in his own country 40 plus years after his death. So that's the only reason why I brought it up. I it's No, it's a great question. And I think the thing that's hanging me up is that that war is constant. His concern was not specific to that kind of event. I think it was an to ongoing- To a revolution. Right, right. It was a constant ongoing battle. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. So speaking of faith, every biography that I looked at of Dostoevsky mentions a time he was in, I believe it was in, he was in Basel in Switzerland with his wife. And by the way, you mentioned gambling. Did you- um, or have you heard the story of the time that he forced his wife to pawn her wedding ring? I so have he not could, heard that so story. So he could keep gambling. It was this like four or five day like binge gambling session. I don't remember where it was in Europe, but he and his wife are living in a casino and he's just gambling everything he has. And finally he's out of money. And so he goes to his wife and like, give me your wedding ring and pawns it. I have it. not heard that story. Yeah. Yeah, he's not his, a particularly good gambler. He no, wasn't he very wasn't. Good at it. No, and his um, his first wife, I know. Ultimately, they they I think they they divorced. I'm pretty sure. I don't think she passed away, but it was not a happy marriage. But his second wife was very long suffering and very patient, and and was with him for the rest of their lives. But you got to wonder if that conversation, how that conversation went, like, honey, give me your wedding ring. I need I need it to go play some more roulette or whatever it was. Why would you wonder about that conversation? I never like hearing. I think it'd be kind of funny. I will. It would be funny. I think now, but at the time, I was like, that's horror. Yeah. I guess because I'm not married, I, I, I can't imagine that conversation. I'm, just, I'm trying to think of how Sarah would uh, res- react if you were like, hey, honey, um, can, I've been can, playing blackjack and losing constantly. Can I have your wedding ring? Just just for a few just, minutes. Just, I'm yeah. going to win everything back as soon as I pawn it. Yeah, that would not go well. No. No. Yeah. I, I, I foresee. Why does Joe have a black eye? Yeah. <laughs> it was about a year later. They were, they were still traveling, and he and his wife, Dostoevsky and his wife, are in Basel, and they go to a museum, and they see this big, huge painting by Hans Holbein, and it depicts the body of Christ after he's been taken off the cross. Most at that time, and going back to the time of Christ, most artists, when they depict it, Jesus is still portrayed as, like, you you could almost see, I mean, there's like a trickle of blood from his side and from his hands and feet and things like that, but you could almost envision him his eyes opening up at that moment. He didn't look... Yeah, he didn't look dead. He dead didn't look or like he was like tortured that, or this beaten. This painting is horrifying because his body is starting to decompose. You see it in the hands, you see it in the face, you see it in the feet. His He's gaunt and, and, and just, I mean, he's skeletal. And apparently, Dostoevsky's wife had to physically drag him away because he just kept going back to it again and again and again. He spent hours in front of this painting. It affected him emotionally and and physically to the extent that he almost had one of his epileptic seizures Mm. in that moment. Literary critics and and analysts point to that moment when his writing kind of shifted in style, where he becomes more deeply involved in the kind of science versus faith conversation, and more importantly, where he starts to include more death especially suicide, in his writings. So I'm curious, 
as a writer, as someone who's done a lot of reading about Dostoevsky, one, do you think that that's an accurate kind of interpretation of how that event impacted him? And second, do you think that his writings would have been as dark had he not seen that? Or do you think, could he have been the one Russian who is a little less morose in his writings had it not been for that painting? To answer your first questions, uh, yes and yes. I think that it certainly affected his yeah. writing, and I think that it had an impact on him for sure. In terms of him being the one Russian writer who was not morose, I, I he would have found that painting, mm. I believe. I think that in his mind, in that moment, what he believed happened to Christ, mm -hmm. he could see finally. He had always pictured that in his mind as being the price of redemption. Mm -hmm. I think that seeing it in a painting confirmed, I'll call it his suspicion, I guess, his his thought and uh, his shame mm. that this is something that I have pondered and prayed over and thought about. So I don't think that from the perspective of experience, it was new to him. I think from the, the perspective of confirmation, he felt I was right. Aside from that moment where he saw that painting, is there, an, is there maybe one or two other moments in his life that really, you think really made him into the writer that he was, specifically his writing, not so much his life generally, but... Yeah, his four years in the camp really made him into... And remind me, what was, he, what was he sent there for? So he was still part of the socialist, not, I don't want to call it socialist party, but he was part of the group part of the that movement. was... Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they had been monitored for a while, and finally they were brought up on charges, and he was actually about to be executed. It was the kind of thing mm -hmm. where they're, they have been lined up, the guns are pointed at them, and then a reprieve is granted yeah. literally at the last second. So that's an emotional experience mm -hmm. when you have the barrel of a gun pointed at you and you realize you're going to die, Yeah, only to be reprieved and sent to this, this hellscape that was this, that was this labor camp. Mm-hmm. Was it in Siberia? I believe so. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, the entire experience at the camp was was just awful mm -hmm. in, in every possible way. And it's difficult for us to think about that because when when I think of a bad experience, you think of a beginning and an end. But this was four years of constantly having shackles on in Russian winter, not having a lot of warm clothes. You're constantly cold. Um, the floor in these buildings were inches thick of filth. And by filth, I mean feces and urine and vomit and all kinds of possible disgusting things. Yeah. So I think being in that for a little bit of time, you'd be like, this is gross. This is terrible. I'm uncomfortable being in it for four years mm -hmm. with only short reprieves here and there. It really solidified some of the things that he was already thinking. Hmm. So I think that that was the biggest turn in his life. And I kind of said that in the podcast. It, it was one of those things where the hardship of it was part of the change, not just his experience, but his remembering what had to happen for him to have that kind of awakening. Mm. This is, and that kind of goes against the idea uh, or his push against comfort, like comfort causes us to be more passive. We become less attentive to those things that would make us inherently stronger those types of thoughts, uh, I, I would call them um, the very stoic mm -hmm. thoughts. That time in his life was, it was that refiner's fire. Mm, that's a good way to put it. If memory serves, I'm trying to, I think I'm keeping the timeline straight. Just before he was arrested, he was part of a writer's guild that was heavily socialist. Is that is that correct? Yeah, okay. yeah I believe so. Why do so many writers embrace 
radical left-wing ideas like socialism, communism, things like that. Because throughout the whole history of the early socialist movement, really up until World War II, and to an extent today, there are still a lot of left-wing socialist writers, but it seems like almost every single one, especially if you wrote fiction, you were just captivated and immersed in this socialist idea. And again, this is before we have the examples of the Soviet Union, Red China, North Korea. So during this time period, the things that I've read, it, I think that there's a, a, an attraction to socialism on paper. Because when you write it out and you're thinking people with good intentions, setting up systems by which people less fortunate can gain resources and get an advantage that they wouldn't have any other way. I think that when you're conceptually thinking that way and believing that individuals would be motivated to to give these people those things, mm -hmm. I think it sounds wonderful. Tactical application of this theory uh, is a different matter. You are are hit with the reality. Most people are not motivated to do the things that you think that they would. So conceptually, it's attractive. Tactically, mm -hmm. it never works. Technically, you mean like on the ground? On the ground. Okay. When it's put into practice, what was what was there in concept is now gone. And mm -hmm. that has been proven over and over and over again. I can't think of an example in history where what was written conceptually for socialism or communism has come true when applied. So that's why I think it's very, very fun to stay in the concept. Mm -hmm. I did a Russian literature class in college, and my professor said that basically Dostoevsky should be the Russian word for suffering because it seems like everything that he writes about, he's writing about suffering. And he's writing about the, obviously, the horrors of suffering, as described already in this discussion by his experience in the labor camp, the, um, I almost said photograph, the painting that he saw of Christ's suffering. Talk for a minute about his idea that suffering actually is a benefit to you. And I know that's not an idea unique to, to Dostoevsky. Everyone from St. Augustine to Jocko Wilnick talk about suffering and pain being keys. What was his psychology of suffering? When you suffer, you are more prone to be humble, thankful, honest, and empathetic. Mm -hmm. You have a better understanding of yourself and those around you. When you feel comfortable and you pursue comfort, you're less all of those things. There's a reason why this theme is prevalent, and it's because it's, it's absolutely true. When I am passive and I am seeking comfort, I am less about others and more about myself, right? Mm, yep. And so when we're thinking about suffering, it boils down and refines and burns away those things about ourselves and about who we are that need to go. Mm. It, it refines us into people that we need to be. Mm -hmm. You know, we haven't talked on this podcast before, but you know, I have a background where as a as a teenager, I was I went through a fairly horrific experience in terms of a stepfather who was abusive. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I was a victim, 100%. I had to come to terms with that and acknowledge that, but also I had to make the choice. I'm not going to allow that to dictate my life going forward. First thing, get out of bed. Mm -hmm. First thing. So get out of bed, make your bed. And so it, it was those small, small steps. But in that suffering, all of the ancillary concerns that I had before burned away. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, I was very focused on what was going on and how to grow out of it, how to get past it. 
I mean, a second example would be, you know, we talked about this, I think a couple of years ago on the podcast where I mentioned um, I had a time in life where, you know, I couldn't afford anything. I couldn't afford food. So I would, I would look for that can of soup in the back, mm-hmm. back of the uh, cabinet. And I remember pouring that into a bowl and turning on the heat and heating it up and, and all that and enjoying this feast. I never for, have forgotten that. Every year at Thanksgiving, I look at the bounty on that table and mm-hmm. I remember that can of soup. Um, I am thankful for every single morsel of food because of that experience. So it's a long answer, but in thinking about suffering, when those things in your life happen that you have no control over, that you can't foresee, and it breaks you down completely, if you're practicing putting yourself in in uncomfortable positions, when those horrific things happen, it may strip all of that away. Mm -hmm. You may have but one little thing to hold on to, but that little thing is your first step. And so without the mindset of embracing suffering, you're not going to be as prepared for those things that inevitably life is going to throw at you. Thank you for joining us in our discussion of Fyodor Dostoevsky. I'm John Streeter. And I'm Joe Parker. Be sure to leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast. And if you feel so inclined, please support our channel by going to www.15minutehistorypodcast.org and clicking the support button. Please join us for our Thanksgiving special this Thursday, and we will see you next week.